0: hello folks and welcome back this is the high performance human podcast and i'm your host simon ward each week i'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance firstly though thank you so much to linda henry whose generous donation has covered the costs of this week's podcast this episode is dedicated to you linda In the four years since the podcast launched, we've managed to do so without adverts. And I'd like to continue in this manner. But the costs of producing the weekly episodes are growing annually. If you're interested in making a one-off or a regular donation to the podcast to help cover our costs, then in return, I will dedicate that episode to you. And we can avoid the thorny issue of adverts. You can find a link in the show notes below or you can email beth at thetriathloncoach.com for further details. Now this week, Andy Blow from Precision Hydration joins me to talk about hydration and fueling. Andy shares some insights into how the COVID pandemic was actually positive for Precision Hydration and accelerated the development of new products. And we discuss the new range of Precision Hydration energy gels and sports drinks. So let's get right to it and hear from Andy. Welcome back to the High Performance Human podcast to Andy Blow, Precision Hydration. Good to be back, Simon, as ever. Yeah. Now, it's been a while. Um, lo- lockdown looks like it's treated you well. It looks like it's treated your hair well.
1: Yes. I've not seen the inside of a barber as much to many people in my family's disgust, but I'm keeping it going because I'm 18 months in now. I've got to make it to two years, I reckon. We'll Let's um,
0: give us a side profile then because uh, to anybody, if this, is, yeah, there it is. Look, Um Holding up in a nice bun. Have you not thought about a top
1: knot at all? Uh I don't know if I've got enough for that yet. Really, the best thing about this now is I'm back to like having short hair again because it doesn't go in my eyes when I'm running. Right.
0: Is that what you have to do for for um for your events then? Have it in a in a bun like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was actually out running this morning. So um, yeah, still like it now.
0: You're not going for the uh the braids like the girls do.
1: No, although there is an incriminating photo during the rounds because I've got a, a young daughter who likes to have her hair in plaits and she made me have that for a family photo, which was quite amusing.
0: <laughs> Bit of blackmail coming there then.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That those photos need never see the light of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well it's
0: been a while since we chatted. I think you were you were in um oh at least a couple of years ago, probably after we'd been to Boulder, I think. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah that's, so we, we sat and chatted in the stadium at um we did. CU boulder, didn't we? For the yeah, yeah. training piece. Summer. So
0: why why don't you fill us in in what you've been up to? Because I know you've got a couple of new products that are out. So I'm sure the listeners would like to hear about those.
1: Yeah, we um so like everyone, it's been a turbulent 18 months or so. We we I was in America literally just before the first coronavirus lockdown. And so came home from that trip, went into lockdowns immediately after. As a from a business perspective, we'd mm. hired uh two new people at that that point and immediately obviously sales dropped off a cliff um for for a short while and we went into sort of like panic mode a little bit to Mm. figure out what we're going to do um and we as as you and some people listening may know we we sort of have a two-pronged business. We work a lot with endurance athletes. It's a big part of what we do and a lot of our online business and sales is geared towards um, endurance athletes, but we also do a lot with professional sports teams, mm-hmm. which means traveling a lot, which means getting on the ground with with teams and uh, and working with them on their hydration strategies and, and products. And obviously all of that just stopped, all of that side of the business stopped. So very quickly, we, we got our heads together and reorientated what we were doing and decided to do what well, we had to do everything more online. And one of the first things we innovated actually was offering 20 minute free video calls with athletes to talk to them about their hydration during training and what they could be doing while there were no races on during the pandemic to prepare for when they came back. Mm-hmm. That that proved to be resoundingly popular. I think we had 77 people book in the first day or something wow. to, to the and and so it's actually a service that we've carried on since and we've really geared up as a business to do it. So we've had loads of these one-to-one 20-minute video calls with athletes learning about their, what their questions are around hydration and how we could help. So we started doing that. And as, as part of that process, we were obviously watching, we recorded those videos. We were watching some of them back to see what the common themes were and see what we were mm-hmm. learning and what people were asking. And we found that over 90% of the conversations that we had obviously didn't just talk about hydration. People wanted to talk about fueling as well because the two go hand in hand. And mm-hmm. as a company, we've always been very much in our niche for hydration but we decided that was the stimulus we needed to look at fueling products as well so over the over that year then last year we we developed some new fueling products energy gel a carbohydrate drink energy chew we're actually looking at an energy bar as well and importantly alongside that we built some we started building some online tools to help educate people on how much fuel they might need to do certain different activities, very much in the same way that we've always done with hydration. So this last 18 minutes has been all around, you know, building the building the online tools and building the products to allow people to understand their fueling for endurance a lot, lot better. I'm
0: really interested to look at companies that were able to move quickly like this and perhaps, For those companies that were able to move swiftly, the lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic has been the catalyst for them to do things they probably would have done, but it might have taken them three or four years. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of innovations that I think that here to stick. Um, It certainly sounds like, you know, the things that you did in almost in like a
1: panic have, have turned out actually really good for you i think i think it's a cliche now but i think it's catapulted us five years into the future really with where we should have been uh-huh. you know where we wanted to be because we've always talked a little bit about doing fueling um tools yeah. and products but when you're on the road you know mm. one one and a half to two weeks a month it's very very difficult to get the time to sit and do that and i have to give huge credit to the the team around me here at ph because Everyone was so quick to to adapt to the new to the new reality. Refocus. A lot of spade work was done. Everyone was working from home. We we brought in a time when other people were doing things differently. We brought a lot more things in house in the business, so rather mm-hmm. than outsourcing things, we brought our fulfilment in the UK and Europe in house. So we've moved the premises and took advantage of the availability of premises to do that. We've we've um, as I say started to build these online products and things. We've we upped our we we have a performance newsletter that goes out every week on email, which people can sign up to. And at the start of the pandemic, we realized that a lot of people were at home. They were doing a lot more online reading. So we started a new newsletter as well. So now we have two newsletters every week. We have one which is curated content from the rest of the Web, stuff that our team's been reading. And then we have our traditional sort of performance newsletter. And, you know, that that's not been a small undertaking. But again, it's another one of those things that stuck. It's just carried on now. And the readership of it has gone through the roof. And it's been another phenomenal innovation. We would never have thought about producing two newsletters a week, 52 mm. a year, if that hadn't have happened. So, yeah. yeah, it's been crazy.
0: I mean, it's hard work. You know, I, I, and I've, over the years, put out newsletters once a week once every couple of months. I'm at once a month now, mostly because I have to. Well, I do two. I do one for my SWAT group and I do one for, and I do a high performance human newsletter. So the high performance human thing is more about, you know, the whole, the holistic thing. So it might focus on sleep, it might focus on nutrition, it might focus on mobility, it might focus on stress management or something. And the SWAT thing is more specifically to the people in that group. It takes a bit of time to put them together, but uh, it always seems to me that if you produce something like that, that people really want to read, You'll get people signing up for it. And and as we know, when you're online, the one thing you can control, you can control Facebook, but you can't control the algorithm, how many people you reach on Facebook. But if you've got a mailing list to 10,000 people, you can control getting 10,000 emails out to them every week, aren't you? And I I know it might be a little old-fashioned to think about the mailing list being the the most important thing, but I actually think it is. And And keeping in touch with your customers on a regular basis like that and giving them valuable stuff, that they can read and place trust in means that when they're going to make a choice, your name's going to be top of the list.
1: Yeah. We've, we've found it's a great way of keeping in touch with people. A lot of people we've, we've manned the inbox to our newsletters in the team so when Mm -hmm. people email in and ask questions or comment on it they get a reply within a few hours from a real human being Mm -hmm. we've always have have placed a lot of emphasis on that on that kind of stuff and increasingly as well we've been working with athletes or our athlete ambassadors we've got a lot of athletes who are phenomenal at what they do and we've got an increasing amount who are also really good communicators and good writers because they contribute really great insightful content to that newsletter so i write some of the content from maybe a a scientific or um, you know sort of product development point of view, we've got contributors who write about races. We've got contributors, external contributors, who write about specialist topics. A bit like your high performance, high performance human one. We 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 talk a lot about sleep. We talk a lot about um, mm-hmm. you know training methodologies or or anything else and other new kind of like performance fads and technologies and and that sort of thing. So it's a good and there's an endless there's an endless amount of topics to talk about in that area these days.
0: There is well, I, I applaud what you're doing there. I think that if you can create stuff organically, and as I say, there's so much, there's so much competition out there in the nutrition space. I mean, that's maybe my next question is: you've moved into a carbohydrate product. I, I guess that was coming, but it also pitches you up against some well-established um, competitors who've probably got a bigger name than you and have been around longer. So, how do you? how do you make your voice heard amongst those? So obviously the newsletter and the trust that people place in what you produce in that newsletter is one way.
1: Yeah, I think fundamentally it's down to the fact that we've always had this philosophy that, and we wrote about this years ago, there's three things that you need as an endurance athlete when you're competing or training hard. You need fluid and salt or sodium to replace what you lose in sweat and you need calories usually in the form of carbohydrates mm-hmm. to sustain your performance and we've called those the three levers and you need to or the three the three key numbers and you need to know what your numbers are so you need to know roughly how much fluid you're going to need for a given exertion mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. much sodium you're going to need with that and you're going you need to know how many grams of carbohydrate per hour you require to sustain top performance and i think the sports nutrition world is very very confusing to a lot of people there's a lot of hype we we've talked about this kind of hierarchy of of needs in terms of information in there and the at the bottom of that pyramid the most important thing to know is how much fluid how much salt how many grams of carbohydrate per hour there that's the most important thing to know above that you might want to start digging into the detail around what format of products whether it's gels or chews or bars or whatever and then above that you might focus on is it what type of carbohydrate it is, or what delivery method is? Is it a hydrogel or some? But most of the products in our in our orbit focus on that that top bit. You know, mm. like the Morton is the classic example at the moment. And I think what they're doing is a brilliant job in marketing and product development. I think they've got some really good products, but they're selling this product on a, on a kind of single, very small. Um, you know, it's small in terms of impact idea that this hydrogel is far far superior to anything else and all the science and the anecdotal reports suggest that you know it's it's just carbohydrate really you know maybe there's a marginal gain for some people in some situations but if if you don't know how many packets to take an hour then it doesn't matter whether it's a hydrogel or what you know i've always been of the opinion you just need to know your numbers so even before we started doing this fueling stuff, we were working with athletes and and sitting down with them and you know pre race, what's your plan? How much fluid do you think you're going to need per hour? How much salt do you think you need per hour? How many calories or how much carbohydrate do you think you're going to need per hour? And then sitting down with them in the day or two after the race mm-hmm. and getting a as the best recall that we can to crunch the numbers and see how those two things panned out, what the weather conditions were like, how hard they went, how well they went. And that by doing that, you build up a database of experience, which you can then lean on to, to tweak those numbers in the future. And that's, yeah. that's a pretty unsexy and sort of iterative trial um, <sighs> and error process. But it is one that I've found that working with a lot of athletes over the years tends to be productive.
0: I, I like the fact that you focus on that word unsexy there. You and I have been around a long enough in the triathlon market to know that if you sell something that, you know, that looks a bit sexy, it's going to get a lot of attention. Cool. But in coming back to your point about the hierarchy and that pyramid, um, you, you look at the work Stephen Silas done on polarised training. At the very bottom of that, he just says, just get volume and frequency in. Don't worry about intervals. Don't worry about what percentage of your weekly training intervals are. Just use if you've only got 10 hours a week, train as regularly as possible and get that 10 hours a week in and make the most of it because that's the number one thing you're going to need. Then if you can add some intervals, do do some hit stuff. And then if you're going to get a bit more precise, make it around five or ten percent of your total training or one or two sessions. And then above that line, he says, you know, things like altitude training, heat training, fasting training, low carb approaches, different nutrition, power meters, all of these gadgets. But they're above the line. They're the things that everybody focuses on. So it's a bit like that phrase, you know, they're they're mowing the lawn while the house is burning. Yeah. And actually, if people focused on the non-sexy stuff, getting the work done, being consistent over two years. Life's very simple actually. And and again, coming back to your point there about those three levers, it doesn't matter what carbs you take in or what product you get or you know this or that or the other, if you actually don't know your numbers. And and, and people spend a lot of time finding out the numbers for the training zones, don't they? Finding yeah. out what their FTP is. But arguably none of that matters if you're not eating enough carbs or you're not fueling enough and getting enough hydration in during the race, because you're gonna you you're basically gonna come to a full stop before yeah. you reach your potential.
1: That that is fully it. And that's why the first tool that we built in all this was called the Quick Carb Calculator, which is basically sits on our website, it's free to use. You punch in the answers to some very simple questions. What sport are you doing? You know, run, bike, swim, triathlon, whatever. How, How long is the duration of your activity? What's the intensity of the activity? And from that, we can give you a reasonably robustly scientific bit of advice on how many grams of carbohydrate you need to take per hour and anyone who's familiar with the literature around that will know that most recommendations for carbohydrate per hour sort of tend to go in 30 gram type brackets it's like about 30 grams 30 to 60 grams 60 grams 60 to 90 grams or maybe even in the in the new sphere of things like 90 grams plus in some cases Mm you know some people taking some big amounts of carbs so we we decided that early on, one of the things we we're going to put on the packets of our products was, you know, do them in multiples of 30 grams of carbohydrate. Because when you pick up a normal energy gel, you're looking in that fine print at the back to find that, oh, this one's 22.7 grams and this <laughs> one's 22.4. And this, yeah. it's just, you don't want to be doing that kind of maths when you're on the fly as an athlete. You want to know if I'm taking 60 grams now, that's two of these gels or one of, one of these gels and one bottle of this drink or whatever. Mm. And, and just like getting those numbers in your head. Um, and and try and and then like I say test and adjust, test and adjust. We've we've just been through an iterative process with a, a bunch of professional athletes who've done numerous seventy point three races through the summer, the Collins Cup um, last weekend, and every race we've captured their plan, their actual, and done a debrief, plan actual debrief. And even at that level, you start to see little um, you know little uh, ways in which you can you can tweak things to move in the right direction you know some have a tendency to just not to fuel very very much on the light side others are very aggressive on the fueling but need to work on the hydration or or whatever weather conditions play a huge role in that the amount of difference we see in like how much people need to drink in hot humid conditions versus like the collins cup was very cold and actually quite wet and -hmm. the amount that those pro athletes were drinking was really quite small even you know for a three-hour race but when we when we see that across the board it then gives us confidence to know what kind of plan will work for them in similar conditions in a few weeks time in another race and and it's just about getting that that you know getting the confidence in knowing those basic numbers and then if you're still having problems after that yes maybe you need to go looking at whether you benefit from removing fructose from your sugars or doing this or doing that but the amount of people that start like you say they're mowing the lawn when the house is on fire they're starting with the minutiae when they've not got the the big important stuff sorted out is is crazy
0: yeah getting the big important stuff sorted out first And and it is it's like swimming isn't it look you know which drills the right one well just get in the pool regularly swim three times a week four times a week and worry about the drills afterwards if you need to do any most of the times you can correct it um with one drill or be a little bit more mobile that will help but oh no hold on shall i get these form goggles or shall i use this or shall i use that again high level stuff second basics first
1: yeah um so the oh. i think the incentives in the industry are the diff. the difficulty is like putting being defensive towards other brands for for a moment mm-hmm. is that it's it's quite difficult to differentiate between say carbohydrate energy gel products you know they are essentially little packets of uh-huh. X amount of grams of carbs and so people have obviously for years competed on flavor and texture Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing, and and then it's like the type of sugar or the, the 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 format of it or whatever, and it is the obvious thing, and it's the it's the only real thing open to to a lot of people in order to differentiate from brand to brand. Mm-hmm. But our point isn't isn't that. the the energy gel that we've made i think the energy gel that we've made tastes fantastic it's the right texture and all those sort of things but we're not we don't want to sell it on a false promise that it's going to be the answer to all your problems The, the answer to all your problems is taking enough of them per hour along with the right amount of fluid and then you'll you'll feel fantastic
0: so if i want to if i want a builder to come and look at my house a builder's a builder right they 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 build things and they construct things so how am I going to choose if if the product's all the same? When I first started out in sales, I, my sales manager said, people buy from people. They don't buy products or on price. I mean, price is a concern, but I'd rather have a job done properly by somebody I get on with than than um than not. And so again, coming back to the point about keeping people informed, getting the basics right, people learning to trust you, the fact that you're an athlete and you you're out there. So so you walk the walk and you talk the talk. Um it's all got to go into the mix there. I mean, if if you look at if you look at a lot of companies, I guess, High Five, who who are the owners of High Five? Does anybody know? I mean, I know, you probably do, but how many customers know? Who owns Power Bar? It's owned by Nestle, yeah. right? So is it a product that's really bothered about athletes or is it a product that's just part of their um, range? And, and if it wasn't doing well, they'd get rid of it sharpish. Whereas with PH, they get Andy Blow don't they who's who's out there doing the racing
1: well what we're trying to do really is genuinely you know you you know the origin story of how we started out and the idea is is to help athletes the fact that we've ended up selling products is is an interesting part of that story but it's not the whole story we didn't set out to manufacture a product and then try and sell it you know it was like what we're building tools that we think help athletes i'm i it it all, all founders will probably tell you the same thing but i now am so proud of like i you i will use our products above all else and that was the mantra we set out with in the in mm-hmm. the especially with the fueling line it was like we we've got these energy chews coming out which i just think are going to be so much tastier and better than what everyone else does but they're also going to be 30 grams a serving and you know worked into this plan so it is it, it is about that and i think to your point you you were sort of Touching on a, a similar phrase to one that we use in the office here all the time, which is that you need to you need to sell outcomes and not features, because no no one's bothered what the the, the features of this are. What they want it to do is to help them get. Under eleven hours for that Ironman, or what, or under three hours in the London Marathon, or whatever the goal is, it's the outcome that they're chasing. It's not like buying a hi-fi or something like that, where you do want the features and the, all of this. This is this is a tool to help you get to the finish line in good shape. So we try and focus on saying to people, look, if you follow our instructions, we think there's a good chance that you'll perform really well, and we have a suite of tools that you can use to to do that. People can go elsewhere and use other stuff, but quite often they do end up, you know, obviously using ours. It's quite
0: interesting what you say about different approaches for different races, because I, I think, again, often there's a tendency to have a blanket approach. Like this is this is the fueling that I use for my triathlon. So I always have this number of bars and this number of gels and this number of water bottles with this concentration. And that's what I use. But of course, that requirement will change depending on how long the race, how how hilly it is how windy it is how hot it is or cold
1: yeah definitely it's always it's always changing there's always sort of like a base level if you're doing a 70.3 in one condition and 70.3 in other conditions of course it's going to be similarities but yeah especially on the hydration side there's a huge difference between doing you know 70.3 nice which is coming up i think this weekend as we're Mm. talking you know 70.3 in the uk where the weather conditions could be absolutely you know to- totally different so there's always got to be an element of interpretation and the the other thing is i think it's about you you're right in what you say people often have this standard this is what i do and not quite often it doesn't get the analysis it deserves i don't think in how much it contributes to performance i mm-hmm. think Olympic distance, I think you can ruin your race with poor fueling, you know, but but it's it's harder to do than than with say an, a, a half Ironman type distance where it actually becomes quite a significant contributor through to the Ironman or beyond when it becomes like. Mm. To use the cliche, the fourth discipline. And you really do need to, if you're an Ironman athlete, you do need to treat nutrition as the fourth discipline. You need to train it. You need to practice it. You need to iterate it in exactly the same way that you do. your swim, bike and run. Because otherwise, it's that X factor that just doesn't go well on the race day.
0: 90 grams an hour. So yeah. I've tried this. I've, I've done 18 full distance races now. And I would say that on three quarters of those, I've thrown up. Yeah, about halfway through the run. Now, one of the things that always bugs me is that the research often, when you read it, it's done almost to exhaustion or on a five-hour ride in in the lab. There's no swim before it. There's yeah. no there's no run where you get into two hours. I mean, who's going to do a research to, that involves you know an Ironman sw- a bike and, and an Ironman swim? And also, there's not the stress. And I'm sure the you know we know what the stress of race day does to your stomach anyway before you even started fueling. Um, but still, whenever I've tried that it's led to me just feeling more and more nauseous until I've just had to bring up everything I've got. And then of course I can exist on Coca-Cola to the end and I feel okay. So you're probably going to tell me it depends and you want to know a bit more, but it just feels to me like 90 grams is too much. So do I need to take a more precise approach or do I need to practice Consuming that amount of calories, and how do I, without doing another Ironman as a training race, it, how do I go dark and put myself into the position where I know what happens to me when I'm halfway through a, a long run?
1: Yeah, good. It is a good question. It's such a, it is such an it depends answer, but I, I can tackle it from from one end to begin with, which is probably to say that as a general rule. I would say what I'm seeing from the numbers that we see with athletes that we work with is that there is a something of a correlation between the ability to take in and tolerate more carbohydrate and the ability to race harder for longer. So we've just seen some numbers from athletes who raced in Roth at the weekend, um, some of which were on the ladies' side were on the podium of the event. And we were, we're seeing like, routinely seeing 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour on the bike a little bit less on the run and often that's the case with triathlon is you obviously Mm -hmm. take zero in the swim load up a bit more on the bike it's easier to eat and drink more on the bike and then you see it taper off on the run but there's 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 a definite tendency to see people trying to and being able to tolerate more carbohydrate when they're at the pointy end of races there's an obvious falling off point though, where you've mentioned is that if you try and emulate that and take on more and it makes you feel nauseated and sick, then that, that is no longer helping your performance. That's potentially contributing to a decline in performance. So you have to tread that, that line. And so just, just because a a top athlete can do 90 or hundred grams of carb on the bike doesn't mean you should necessarily try to emulate that, but the the way that we encourage people to do it is to start when your longest hardest brick training sessions is start with the level of carbohydrate consumption in the exact same type of products that you would be using in the race to get to to start with a number that you feel confident with and over a period of five or six weeks so a, a number that you know you can do if you can do comfortably do 60 grams an hour on the bike in a long brick session then you can then nudge that up to 65 grams, 70 grams, 75 grams over a period of weeks and start to figure out where that ceiling might be. And I, I I do agree with you that there are caveats there, like, yeah, you probably won't have done a swim before that. Yeah, you won't have that nervous race day stomach. So if anything, you you might then want to take a, a conservative view on where you got to in the race. But I do, I'm becoming more and more of a believer in the idea that gut training is underrated. You know, it, it's something which athletes, I know that I used to do that thing where you would save your gels for race day. You know, I'd train on bananas and cereal bars and that sort of thing. And the only time I'd really touch an energy gel was on race day. And I can categorically tell you, if I was racing a serious long distance race now, I would not do that. I would be in, not not all the time, but in my longest and hardest training sessions, I'd be simulating nutrition in the same way I'd be wearing my bike shoes and all that sort of stuff. So I have a question
0: for you then. You talked about the fastest athletes. Are the fastest athletes going faster because they have a gut that enables them to process more calories? Because that, I guess, and I have read some stuff, I think, Herman Ponser talks about in his book burn and about yeah. metabolism that, you know, where Phelps talks about consuming 12,000 calories a day. And I've clear, clearly that's not possible, but he's probably still consuming 7,000 calories and the limits human performance they think might be on how much food somebody can actually process and therefore, um, you know, to fuel the performance. Um, or is it that these athletes, um, what did I say? They, they've got a, they've got a genetic ability to, um, consume the carbohydrates or they are consuming the carbohydrates and that's making them go faster if if i've worded that correctly which comes first
1: and yeah which is it which is the cause and you know which is the cause and effect yeah it's very hard to unpick like like most other things there's there's probably a, a contribution from both i would say that there's the I've not seen what I've not seen is many athletes doing really well in long-distance endurance races on really low amounts of carbohydrate intake. Um, I've talking to the right the nutrition team at DSM, the cycling team who look who ride in the tour and all the big you know pro tour races they reckon that something, the window for optimal performance in those long races seems to be between 70 grams an hour for some people up to 110, 115 grams for others. And that is quite individual. So the guys that can tolerate 70 grams an hour rarely go above that or significantly, but seem to be able to consistently do it and perform at a high level. So they're, it doesn't mean that the guys at 110 are performing better than them because they're all in the mix at that level. Obviously there's a, there are differences in performance, but it's quite homogenous. The, so does does that mean that, you know, being able to process tons and tons of carbs is a prerequisite to being an elite athlete. I don't, I don't think it does because obviously efficiency comes into it. Some people will consume more energy because they burn more energy. Uh Um, I think, Where people are really pushing the envelope, there are, I've heard reports of Gustav Eden taking 120, 130 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And obviously he's going very, very fast in some of these middle distance races. It's really hard to put your finger on whether that's how, how much that's facilitating that that performance but I think, along with you know being genetically gifted for training, I don't think it hurts to be genetically gifted mm. in that department. I've always found, as an athlete, relatively speaking, that I'm able to go for a run after I've eaten a plate of food and those sort of things. It's not not a problem, and I appreciate that other people have a more sensitive stomachs. So I think there's an element of it being inherent. What what I would say to close off on that bit though is though I think for most athletes, if they really analyse what they've what they do and what they've done over the years. I don't think many people could could hand on heart say they've made a, a concerted effort to train their gut to improve the processing of carbs. And I think then until you've tried that, you've got to you know you've got to you've got to assume that there's a there is a, there's there's a gain to be made if you're prepared to do that.
0: A lot of the listeners on here will be saying, "Well, I don't, I don't do nine hours, ten hours. I'm thirteen or fourteen hours." Is there an argument to say that athletes are at that point are able to get away with? consuming less carbohydrates because they're not going as fast or that they're able to consume real food you you hear stories all 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 over the forums of people saying yeah my favorite foods a pork pie or a cheese and pickle sandwich um i've always sort of you know held back from that a little bit just on the basis that those that that sort of real food is going to take longer to digest than uh, than than some specially formulated nutrition products so um what do you think about those approaches and how do people get away with it
1: yeah, I think there's definitely a sliding scale. As you're obviously the guys and girls at the front are very fit, which enables them to ho- hold a higher percentage of their VO2 max for the duration of the race. So their rate of energy burn is higher. So they're going to be the ones who are going to go almost exclusively on liquid, semi solid carbohydrates and, and not a lot else. When you start to go a little bit slower, or when you are going a bit slower, You're you're also proportionately probably holding a lower percentage of your maximum, so the contribution of energy from fat in in your burn is is higher. So arguably, yes, you can probably eat a little bit less carbohydrate and probably mix it in with some more closer to real foods. I think where probably the majority of athletes go in the Ironman or whatever with that is is more leaning towards energy bars and maybe bananas and sort of stuff that you would eat on a training ride. I'm like you; I've I would draw the line on having a a cheese sandwich although i have done it in really long races like i've done the devices to westminster canoe race and sometimes there's just the morale boost of having a sausage (laughs) roll or pork pie or something like that or a bit of hot soup in the night time you know but but in this in in the world of ironman that i'd say you can the rate of energy consumption can be a little bit lower if you're going slower and the contribution of rather than calling it real food say more like solid foods can probably be higher but again, it's it is it is pretty individual, and um, people. It, I, I hate I hate saying that in one way because it sounds like a cop out. But then trying to distill it into a soundbite of advice that works for everyone is disingenuous. So yeah. you kind of have to go on your your own journey with that.
0: I think you can get away with solid food a bit more if you're doing something that doesn't jiggle your stomach around, doesn't it? So if it's running, I think you're going to struggle more if you're doing a long distance uh, bike race or you're doing something like the devices to Estevan, where you sat still. Um, it it might be a little easier although sitting in a kayak for a while would make digestion a little more tricky I guess
1: yeah I I think you're right with with the the main comparison there for most triathletes is between the bike and the run you know that you can eat more solid food and probably drink Mm. more more volume of fluid on the bike and one of the that that. forms one of the backbones of the advice that we give to a lot of Ironman athletes, which is if you're trying to up your fueling, you should be trying to first and foremost up it on the bike rather than the run. Because we all know that a lot has happened in your body by the time you get to the run in an Ironman. So getting there as well hydrated and well fueled as you can is a real priority. Because you, I would say as a rule, if whatever your hourly consumption on the bike in in an Ironman is, you're doing well if you're hitting 70% of those numbers on the run. Mm-hmm. And so when you're working out your overall needs, that's a good metric to look at. We call it front loading. And then even if you split the bike down, if it's, let's say you're out on the bike for six hours in an Ironman, I would, I would say that you probably want to drink and eat proportionally more in the first two hours, slightly in mm-hmm. the second two and in the third two, because the willingness and the ability to digest and consume that is, is far stronger early on. And if you, but, but also it's kind of the easiest time to forget and the easiest time to mm. not consciously eat and drink because you feel great, don't you? You feel good, you're fit and fresh and tapered. You've only you've only done an hour swim or whatever, and then you're out on the bike and you feel great for an hour. And if you don't maximise that first hour with some eating and drinking, mm. you start to dig a hole for later.
0: You touched on carbohydrate there, and there's a lot of athletes now that are experimenting with in their everyday life when they're not training, but also creeping into their training and their racing either a low-carb, high-fat approach. And Dan Plews has been very vocal in uh, promoting that and has tried it with some of his athletes, some of whom it seems to work for, some not. And then going on from there, um, almost completely re- removing carbohydrates from the equation um, into the keto diet and it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because talking about nutrition is like politics and religion. It ends up it's it's black or white. Uh, but let's let's just cover those two subjects first. Let's let's talk about the low carb, high fat thing because you and I have you and I have had uh, chats about that before, and then go on from there to the keto approach and how yeah. you think how you think that might work in general twenty four seven for uh, somebody training for uh, long distance races, and then in terms of their approaching uh, their approaches on race day.
1: Yeah, I think lo- low carb, high fat has obviously been, it's become massively popular in the last decade or so, really. And you've got your extremists like your Tim Noakes and people like that who've gone all out after this this diet. I've got to say, I've, I've certainly played around with it in my own life and um, found that it's changed my attitude towards carbohydrates. I was brought up in the era, same as you, where mm. pasta was the athlete's food and that you you focused on maximizing carbs the whole time. And I do think that that view was, was a bit extremist in the wrong way in that carbohydrate was over-promoted as yeah. an food. But then we got the classic pendulum swing back the other way where it's like, well, you, maybe these athletes – don't need carbohydrates it's like well hang on a minute all of the evidence and i've written a blog on our website which has been quite popular about this just sort of trying to explain the 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 science of carbohydrate fueling for athletes goes right back to the 1920s you know you've got boston marathon runners who were given boiled sweets and sugared tea Mm -hmm. who performed way better than their counterparts who were denied sugar and they figured out straight away is because you know you give you give an athlete who's working hard exogenous carbohydrate and they can go harder for longer, mm-hmm. and that was proven in 1920 and has not been as far as I'm aware disproven since. You know, it's there's lots of evidence in that. The, the the thornier question, I suppose, is around like, well, what therefore, how do you kind of how do you how does that sit with an approach to eating lower carbohydrates in day to day life? And I think the closest we're coming to consensus around balance on that is this kind of fuel for the work required Mm -hmm. approach where, um, you know, which is um, uh, MP and um, uh, who's his co-author on that? Um, Sam MP, isn't it? And James Morton, I think who works for SIS these days, um, Mm -hmm. they wrote this paper all about, um, basically fueling more aggressively for training sessions or on training days that require a heavy output. So in other words, carbohydrates need to be maximized so that you can sustain a high level of physiological output for, for sessions and recover, but on days when, you're, when your goals are more um, about recovery or aerobic, low low level aerobic training you feel lighter on carbs Mm. which kind of intuitively makes sense and seems to me to be a little bit more like the approach i'm seeing a lot of sensible professional athletes take nowadays it's something i aspire to even if i don't live it the whole time i'm definitely more conscious about i don't need a carbohydrate portion with every meal i used to i grew up believing that Mm. some potatoes or rice or pasta or bread or something was a staple in every single meal now it's quite common for me to have protein and vegetables as a, as a meal on days when i'm not training really hard but when i get up and go and ride my gravel bike for three hours i'll have bagels nut butter and honey for breakfast and i'll eat gels when i'm on the bike because i want to i want to ride hard
0: yeah I, I think i've probably sort of come to something like that uh, myself um I did. I did experiment with seeing how far I could ride fasted. You know, I think the furthest I've got is five and a half hours, and it was, you know, over the York Moor, north North York Moors, up to Whitby, and I was pretty hungry at the end of that. And let me tell you, I I, I ate everything. Yeah, I had well, the, the I had the special chips, the special fish, and the double chips uh, when yeah. I got there. Uh, so you you do have to catch up. And I, what I have, you know, I've I've also realised is that if you follow this too. Too extremely, you end up in a, a, a calorie deficit over a yeah. period of days. And that in itself can be destructive, can't it? Yeah. Um, I I also think there's some confusion with athletes about what they do on a day-to-day and what they do on a race. And it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm low carb, so how am I going to approach this on race day? Well, race day is race day. You know, mm. you've got to fuel for the racing. So you basically stop. 24 hours before you fuel for the racing you recover from the racing and then you can go back to your day-to-day nutrition but race day is different particularly if you're keen on having a good performance
1: yeah and i think uh, you know expanding on that a lot of people sometimes get a little bit wrong in that they'll they'll look at the weekend when they're doing their longer traditionally doing their longer rides longer runs and stuff and think this is a great opportunity to do a long fasted run or mm-hmm. a long fasted ride or something mm-hmm. which then ultimately means that you whether you like it or not you will run a little bit slower you will recover a little bit more slowly you will certainly have a knock-on effect into the next day when you then can't go out and ride as hard and for as long or or whatever so your overall training effect is lower because I I chatted with one of the uh, again one of the the physiologists nutritionists at, at DSM who was basically pointed out that a lot of the time they're encouraging their guys and girls to fuel quite aggressively during a lot of training sessions because what they're interested in going back to the silo thing is like the total volume of work done and basically you can support a higher volume of overall training work by fueling more aggressively it doesn't mean over fueling but it means making sure that you are fueled so that if you can push out that fifth or sixth interval at a higher yeah. watts instead of you know caving in well i think
0: you you were somebody who pointed this out to me as well is that carbohydrates play a big part in supporting the immune system as well, don't they? Now, uh, I think the immune system, certainly for athletes, have been m- much more in focus over the last 18 months about, right? you know, if you're trying to train at the same time as um, protect yourself from, from COVID, you need to have a strong immune system. So if you're battering the immune system with training and then you're not providing with the, the ways to rebuild itself, that, that's a double jeopardy, really. And if you get ill, then you're not going to be training anyway. So what have you gained?
1: Yeah, definitely, and also things like I I noticed when I was trying to lose weight as an athlete, I would I'd carbohydrate restrict, but also probably overall calorie restrict, and then you'd find things like if you got a little cut on your finger, it wouldn't heal very well. Mm-hmm. Sort of real strong marker that actually your body's into a bit of a survival mode, and mm-hmm. you, so internally you're obviously if you, if that's what's happening externally, what's happening internally? You're you're not rebuilding muscle after you know damage that occurs at workouts. You're gonna you're gonna reduce your metabolic and physiological gains so yeah um, interesting, you know on the on the flip side with the keto thing i a few years ago i was i was almost like really quite anti it now i would say there are a few examples of people who've done phenomenally well on really really long endurance events following hmm that approach and it does pique my interest that you know you can do these kind of ultra long things when especially when for example like getting re getting um fuel food to you during a long event is really difficult you'd be more self-sufficient i think there are cases when a long-term approach to fat adaptation could could well be useful i just think that where they are though they sit outside the they sit outside the realm of what most of us would constitute as like normal sport
0: well and i, I also don't you think that, that there's a there's a couple of things that um to, to go back on what you said earlier you talk about knowing your numbers and planning for a race um going back even more to basics than that is planning your nutrition for the week based around your training program how many people actually sit down on a sunday evening and say right this is my training for next week so i've got a I've got three easy sessions to do on this day, but that's still three hours of training. I've got one hard session to do here on that day. This is a rest day, so this is what I need to be eating here. This is what I need to be eating here, and these are the foods that I need to have available in in order to support that and recover from it. Yeah. Okay, so there's that there's that planning and mindfulness about what you eat. Um, the second thing is uh, I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Tommy Wood, um, nourish, yeah. balance, thrive. From, from the US, but Tommy's uh, Tommy's a great character. I've had a podcast with him. I'd, I'd highly recommend that um, listeners listen to that one, but also some of his others. Tommy has two things to say about diet that he says regularly. One, if you've got an approach that's working for you, i.e., you healthy, you're able to do all the things you want, and you can recover, that's great. How can I argue with it, regardless of what it is? And two, instead of thinking about what's the least amount of food you can eat, what's the most amount of food you can eat without gaining weight? right yeah. and then you should be trying to do that you should actually be maximizing your nutrient dense foods yeah. and and again being mindful of what your weight is and if you start to gain weight then obviously you're eating a few too many calories and you need to just cut back a bit but eat as much as you possibly can to support your lifestyle rather than as little.
1: I I, I would definitely say that what I've found over the years when my, my body composition doesn't tend to move around too much but it tends to follow my it tends to follow decent training and, and lifestyle rather than being led by what I eat. If you know what I mean? I, yeah. I sort of feel like if I if I make too much of an effort to either restrict or manipulate my diet, it seems to always be a little bit negative as opposed to, you know, when when I'm in the flow with it and I'm training well and training hard and I can eat it's the old 80-20 where I try then to eat, you know, 80, 80% 80 of the time, try and eat sensibly, but then let, let myself off the leash for 20% of the time. Because otherwise I know from experience I just won't stick it. And, you know, we've, we've got a great thing going at work these days where obviously five days a week, pretty much. I'm in the office, I'm eating a, a lunch from the office. We don't have amazing cooking facilities here. We do have fridges and microwaves and stuff like that. So... Myself and Johnny, my business partner, make a real effort. One of us does the shopping, stocks the fridge every few (laughs) days, and it's all like good, nutritious stuff. We don't eat much rubbish at all. And that's that then is five really great meals where it would be really easy just to have crap sandwiches or something like that. We're making a massive effort to eat eat salads and greens and lean protein and that sort of thing. And then it allows me – my breakfast tends to be really good as well anyway just because of the types of foods that I prefer to eat at that time of day so it gives me a bit more latitude with what I eat in the evenings you know it's just yeah it,
0: it feels like if you eat real food and you prepare it yourself so if you avoid refined sugars you avoid processed foods you eat real fr- foods that you prepared yourself you can probably eat ad lib um if you're working out regularly and your metabolism will be pretty sane i think um pretty steady and i think that's what he talks about in the in the book burn about how that that'll stay fairly stable over a long period of time um I know you've got to you've got you're against the clock Andy I did just want to chat about uh one more thing before we go going right back to where you started out taking care of people's hydration needs and when it's warm when we're sweating a lot we obviously think about our hydration and our salt requirements but often this gets ignored for the winter yeah um so how much attention do we need to pay to our salt intake and our hydration? Because we will be sweating during the winter. I mean, whenever we're out riding, we breathe it out and you can see that sort of, uh, that moisture coming out and the water vapor. That is um, excretion of bodily fluids, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's it's an obvious thing to say but we do fluid turnover is usually higher in the summer in the hot weather especially the incidental stuff so you sweat more during training sessions but also you just sweat more I mean it's as we're talking today where I am we haven't got aircon in our office it's 27 degrees you just I'll probably find I'm drinking two or three times more on a day like today than I would on on a cool day so your fluid and, and salt turnover tends to be high and you need to be more mindful of it I think one of the big factors that gets overlooked in the winter is like the the relative contribution of indoor training. People Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time these days on the, on the Zwift and um, other indoor training platforms doing some really quite long rides some tough treadmill sessions and all that sort of thing. They've got to be treated like really hard sessions outdoors in the summer, you know, because your sweat losses can be huge. Mm. We've had, we've had data come in from athletes who've done, home sweat test you know they've weighed themselves before and after sessions where they're losing two and a half hours and two and a half liters in an hour on on the turbo now i know that it's not everyone's cup of tea but some people are doing two or three hour sessions on those and that's a real undertaking and you've got to make sure you you're hydrating for those so they're important to to your point about like training outdoors i think the the time when that's important is when it's very cold and dry and when you're very layered up that's when you can sweat more than you think normally would like if you're racing in the cold we see a very strong trend for athletes to drink quite a bit less because your sensation of thirst is blunted Mm -hmm. but also just because you don't need it as much but when you're going out training in the cold dry air you're really bundled up and you're actually working quite hard you can come home can't you your base layers now drenched through Yeah. Yeah. So i think being being mindful of that is important and and making sure you know you've got an electrolyte drink or whatever on your on your bike and you're sipping away rather than rather than going out with a bottle and coming home with it Still full, it's not a good approach, especially if you've got to train again that day or the next day.
0: Mm. And again, these are simple little things that are easily remedied and which you know all contribute to your ability to recover and go again the next day. And as you and I have, have probably been told by numerous other people who are far smarter than certainly me, anyway, is that consistency is the key. So, you know, don't do something today that's going to limit your ability to go out and do what you need to do tomorrow. And Part of that process is getting your hydration and your nutrition right.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more, especially when training volume goes up in the winter. If people are training hard, then it is about, we we call it stepwise depletion, you know, of either fluids, calories, salts. Mm. Or whatever. You can probably get away with it for one or two days, but it's if you let it slide and then you get into a hole before you realize it. So being, being conscious and mindful of it. I think drinking, especially things like drinking on the bike in the winter, is a lot more... Hard because in the summer the drive is there to do it and it's a very it's a very mm. natural activity. When it's freezing cold and it it's it's cold on your teeth and it doesn't sit well in your stomach, it's harder, it's harder to I've I've actually got one of those double walled um insulated bike bottles, they don't hold as much, but actually if you put fill that up with a warm drink. Mm-hmm out wow, that's that can be quite good because that was a tip I learned from someone who, who you know well who um who's been on your podcast Bernie Shrewsbury because he was a cross country skier. Yep. That you know they always have insulated flasks and thermoses and that because mm-hmm. when you're out on the trails in the snow you aren't going to drink anything that's freezing cold. So they have to go the other way and have hot hot drinks, hot ribena, hot sports drinks. And I think that's always it's more pleasant so you drink more and that helps you recover faster. Mm.
0: Well, Andy, as always, an absolute goldmine of information. I uh, will put links to everything you've talked about, your newsletters, um, some of your videos, the new products you've got out and anything else that you think might be useful for the listeners. And uh, hopefully it'll drive a a few people to sign up for your mailing list and uh, maybe even get some, some of your products.
1: Yeah, well, what we'd love to do, what we'd love people to do as well is sign up to have a video call with us. It's totally free. There's no, it's not a sales pitch. You can come and chat to us about any of your hydration and fueling questions. And that's all. You can book that on our website on precisionhydration.com. So yeah, we'd love to chat with them.
0: Right, well, we'll we'll put a show link to that. Oh, Sorry, a link in the show notes to that as well, Andy. But for now, I know you've got to get off. So thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate you being here. And uh, as always, good value for money.
1: Yeah, thanks, mate. See you again soon.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to Andy for joining me again on the show. There are links to all of today's discussion points in the show notes below. I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast and you can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And you can also join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page, the link for which is in the show notes below. Right. That's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But please remember that being a high performance human is a journey. So just stay healthy, stay focused and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.